Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What can be said about the GameCube that hasn't been said a million times already? Well, turns out it's a fair amount, actually. Today, we've put together over 20 minutes of interesting and lesser-known facts about GameCube games just for your enjoyment, covering titles like Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door, Tales of Symphonia, Resident Evil's stellar remake, and Resident Evil 4, Sonic Adventure 1 and 2, The Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess, Mario Sunshine, and more. Yes, in celebration of our final release of Digino Gaming Extra, we thought we'd bust a huge load all in one go and give you guys a nice juicy double-length release. Not only that, but with Greg and I having helmed the series for all of these years, we thought we'd both take on the narration together. And with all that considered, let's start our fact bonanza with the Pokemon series. The GameCube had a few Pokemon games during its run, with two of the titles being full-blown single-player RPGs. These games had a slightly more dark approach to the usual cutesy style of the series that came before, with the game having a protagonist with a darker outfit and a more adult-oriented region, the Ore region, an urban, dry world inhabited by older people, and was actually inspired by the dry deserts of Phoenix, Arizona. In the second Pokemon RPG on the system, XD Gale of Darkness, a number of references can be found not just to the Pokemon anime, but other anime as well. Once the player reaches Mount Battle Zone 35, a player they can face has a team consisting of a Cacnea and a Chimeco. This trainer states, I've heard someone has the same team combination as me. Do you know him or her? This is a reference to the Pokemon anime, where James of Team Rocket carried a Cacnea and Chimeco during the Advanced Generation series, which was airing during Gale of Darkness's development. This isn't the game's only reference, though. The title's Mecha Groudon vaguely spoofs robots from Mecha anime, but there's a few instances of more precise parody. When the Mecha Groudon launches from underground, it comes up through a large fountain. This is referencing how the Mazinga Z launches in the 1972 anime of the same name, where the giant mech emerges from a fountain. Another Nintendo RPG series we want to mention is Paper Mario. It's pretty much agreed that one of the best entries in the series, if not the best, was on the GameCube with The Thousand Year Door. And as you might expect, a big RPG like this has tons of references. After the game's seventh chapter, Bowser and Cammy will go to Poshley Heights looking for a crystal star, where at some point, Pennington will appear. Pennington will accuse the pair of being common thieves, to which Bowser responds, What are you implying? I'm no little thief, I'm... And then the player has to select either I'm a remorseless king of evil, I'm the shadow thief, or I'm Cooper Coot. 
This second option, Shadow Thief, is a sly nod to another quality Mario RPG, Mario & Luigi Superstar Saga. In Superstar Saga, a character named Popple teams up with an amnesia-brained Bowser. Popple is a generic small-time thief with delusions of grandeur, and one of the nicknames he gives himself is The Shadow Thief. Let's keep this RPG train going with another beloved Cube title. The Tales franchise didn't really hit it big in the West until it came to the GameCube with Tales of Symphonia. Published by Namco, creators of many other popular series, the game has a small easter egg which makes reference to another underappreciated series in their library, but it was fairly well hidden. There are a number of hidden costumes for the characters of the game, but one costume for Prasia Combatir can only be unlocked by putting her in the lead of the party and going to Lazarino Company in Altamira, then entering the President's office, unlocking her the title of Dream Traveler and an outfit reminiscent of Klonoa. Whilst wearing this costume, she'll make a habit of delivering Klonoa's signature catchphrase, <laughs> though not with quite the same enthusiasm as the rabbit or uh, dog or cat thing that Klonoa is. Prasia's woohoo is delivered in a completely deadpan manner during optional skits and scenes where she wears the outfit. She talks normally whilst in battle, and these lines are not voiced by her voice actor in the English version of the game. However, if the player imports the title they earn to a new game, Prasia will occasionally say woohoo as an end of battle phrase, but only up until a certain plot event. One of the most graphically impressive games on the GameCube was easily the remake of Resident Evil. The attention to detail in this complete recreation of the original survival horror is phenomenal, not just in how it plays, but the extra flavor the developers injected into the experience. Some of these extra details might have eluded many players, however, such as with the tombstones found in the cemetery behind the Spencer Mansion. Each grave is marked with Greek text, which mean nothing on their own, but when translated from Greek into Latin characters, they will spell out Capcom. Another detail can be found within the game's item box, where players can store items if their inventory is too full. Despite the fact that players can never see inside of it due to the fixed camera angles, the actual item box in the remake isn't empty. It contains boxes labeled Soft Image, which is the name of the 3D modeling software used for the game. But by adding all these fine details to the remake, which would never have been visible in the original, the language barrier of the developers would also be on show. Text was added to the various items that could be examined from the player's inventory, and with this additional small print, there were more chances for errors to be made. Upon inspecting the ink ribbons used for saving, they'll show ink ribbon for typewriter, royal type, with the word royal mistakenly including the letter I in the middle of it. The latest entry of the Resident Evil series at the time of the GameCube's lifespan was Resident Evil 4, a game which changed the way the series would play, but it didn't change the way players could appreciate the various items within it. Some of the game's weapons have a number of references hidden within them, such as the description of the broken butterfly, which reads, This will make anyone's day. This line, as well as the fact that this weapon is a magnum, is a direct reference to the classic Dirty Harry quote, Go ahead. Make my day. from the 1983 film Sudden Impact. Another homage to the world of cinema comes up with the minigun that the Gatling Man carries, being based on the M134 from the Arnold Schwarzenegger blockbuster Terminator 2 Judgment Day, as well as the 1987 action romp Predator. 
But it isn't just cinema getting nods, as might be rather obvious with the Killer7 Magnum, named after the Capcom game of the same name which would release later the same year as Resident Evil 4, also produced by Shinji Mikami. The design of this gun, however, is inspired by cinema as well, being based on the AMT Hardballer from 1984's The Terminator. Moving from scary to just a bit weird, Odama is a bizarre GameCube exclusive that somehow managed to blend pinball and warfare with a feudal Japan aesthetic. This was one of the last games published for the Cube by Nintendo and was designed by Seaman creator Yutaka Saito. But today's trivia is more interesting than the game's origins. If the player manages to reach the game's 11th stage, Karasuma Keep, it's possible to discover a hidden bonus level by blasting open the Keep's main gate. This bonus level is a small piece of modern-day Kyoto, complete with trains, cars, 21st century citizens, and even Nintendo's own headquarters. And since we're talking about obscure games, the main antagonists of Custom Robo, the Z Syndicate, are certainly shrouded in mystery. For the duration of the game, many characters will try and guess what the Z in their name stands for. While the true meaning is never revealed, there is some interesting trivia surrounding what it could mean. During the A New Journey section of the game, some of the world's NPCs hanging out in the hub park will try to guess what it could mean, with some characters suggesting that it could possibly stand for Zelda, or maybe even Zebes. Zelda is of course a reference to the Legend of Zelda series, while Zebes is a nod to the planet Zebes, the home planet of Samus Aran in the Metroid series. And now for something completely different. This wasn't the only third-party game to mention The Legend of Zelda, so something not that completely different then, to be fair. In fact, one non-Nintendo game even featured Link. It must have been difficult for Namco to get Nintendo to agree to them putting Link in Soul Calibur 2, but there was a convenient coincidence that made putting Link in the game a little easier. What we're talking about is the fact that the series characters, Nightmare, Yoshimitsu, and Siegfried, were already voiced by Nobuyuki Hiyama, who just so happened to be the voice actor for Link. Link was a big reason that many gamers bought this title on the Cube instead of other platforms, and despite the fact that Link only appeared once in the series, his playstyle would live on. Soul Calibur 3, which only released on the PS2 and in arcades, has the Sword and Shield discipline. This is largely the same moveset, however a few of Link's more iconic moves, including the Spin Attack and Charge, have been removed. Perhaps one of the most contentious releases on the GameCube was The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. Its cel-shaded graphics may be widely appreciated now, but on reveal, it caused many heads to turn. It's respected as one of the best entries in the series by many these days, and its attention to detail is appreciated. One such detail was discovered in 2016, when an American livestreamer known as Fishwaffle64 found that the boss of the Forbidden Woods, Kali Demos, can be defeated in a very unique way. Whilst joking with her audience, a user in her live chat suggested that, since Kali Demos is a giant plant monster, perhaps it could be watered using the forest water found at Forest Haven. As it turns out, pouring the water onto the monster's exposed flower head will actually defeat the boss quite easily. While this was performed in the HD Wii U version of the game on stream, the folks over at Nintendo Life tested and confirmed that this secret technique can also be performed in the original GameCube release as well. What makes this secret rather interesting is that the forest water will expire after it's been bottled for 30 minutes, which means players would have to collect the water, enter the dungeon, get to the boss, and drop the water within a 30 minute time span, which could be troublesome. 
That said, it is possible to leave the dungeon after opening the boss room up, collect the water, and then return to the boss. But this is far from Wind Waker's only obscure secret. The game has Hylian text scattered throughout the world, and when translated into English, this text usually gives a fairly straightforward word or two about whatever the text is beside. But occasionally, the Hylian scribe holds some interesting details that you'd have no way of knowing without translating the text. For example, there's a board at the Windfall Island Cafe, written in Hylian, which is actually a specials board. When translated, it reads, Today's specials, Lon Lon Milk, 150, Deku Nut Cake, 300, Zora Coffee, 150. While Lon Lon Milk and Deku Nuts have appeared in various Zelda games, to this day, no Zelda title has ever featured a drink called Zora Coffee. Another secret can be found at Windfall Island. There's a grave on the island that's regularly danced around by Tot. This grave has Hylian text on it, which can be read as 831894, to become a great artist, revealing that whoever died was 63 years of age and aspired to be a great artist, appropriately similar to Tot, and from one of Nintendo's biggest franchise to one of their biggest rivals of all time. The GameCube saw one character appear on a Nintendo system that until recently seemed like an impossibility. Sonic Adventure 1 and 2 were ported from the Dreamcast to the GameCube after Sega's attempt at a next-generation console proved to be too much for the Japanese developer. This didn't mean that the Dreamcast didn't have strong titles of its own, but with Nintendo being a strong leader in the market, Sega saw it fit to release Sonic's latest 3D adventures on their historic rival system. Sonic Adventure 2 Battle was first shown on the system at Nintendo's Space World Event 2001, with the game actually hitting the market only a short few months later, December in Japan and early 2002 elsewhere. This port is believed to have had only six months of development, with many of its graphical assets and functions tweaked during this short span of time. The Chow Gardens, for instance, had GBAs in place of the original Dreamcast VMUs for players that wanted to take their Chow on the go. But when the game was first shown off, there was a slight oversight with these GBAs that Sega fixed in time for launch. The GBA in the Chow Gardens was red, but when Nintendo announced the launch colors for the Game Boy Advance, red wouldn't be an option. In fact, Red GBAs wouldn't be available until 2002, with an exclusive limited edition Red Target GBA in the United States and a Red Zellers GBA in Canada. The GBAs in the games were quietly changed to resemble the Arctic GBA variant which was available on launch. Sonic Adventure 2 saw a release on the GameCube before its predecessor, Sonic Adventure DX Director's Cut. This was possibly because the first Sonic Adventure may not have been quite as polished as its sequel. Many players at the time had tried to break Sonic Adventure in order to discover interesting secrets and glitches, and perhaps some hints of differences in earlier builds of the game. While playing as Big the Cat, it's possible to perform an out-of-bounds glitch which can grant him access to the Station Square Hotel prior to clearing the Ice Cap stage. By glitching into the ocean and hitting a teleport spot to enter the hotel, Big will be prevented from accessing the pool area behind a locked door. In this restricted area, it's possible to find two keys which must be placed on pedestals in order to open the pool area, a situation that doesn't occur at any other point. At no stage in the game must the player fit these keys onto the pedestals. It is only by accessing this area before the player is supposed to that this condition is met meaning that the players may have had to open the pool area before accessing it in some earlier builds during the game's development, before it was decided 
to just have the pool area open at all times instead. Now we're going to spend some time talking about the absolutely insane development of Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader. Work on the game started in January 2001 and had to be finished in just 9 months so it could release alongside the GameCube. This was about half the time necessary to make the game normally, which meant 6-7 to seven day work weeks of constant crunch would be needed. Though Rogue Leader was co-developed by Factor 5 and LucasArts, the bulk of the game's development was done by Factor 5, a team of 25 people plus 2 freelancers. Unfortunately for the team, most obstacles would come. They couldn't use the CG film models of ships made by ILM for the original trilogy, as it wasn't practical to convert them to the polygonal models needed for game development. Instead, usable models were made using Maya. Due to the limited time and resources, some of the models were even made using kids' toys as reference material. An in-house level editing tool called L3D was used for the game's missions, but L3D was an outdated tool made for the original game on N64, and Factor 5 didn't have the time to craft new tools. Roughly half the music for the game is from John Williams' original score, which also saved time. Luckily, Factor 5 had helped develop the Cube's audio system for Nintendo, Musics, and due to their familiarity with the audio tools, they were able to seamlessly blend music dynamically during gameplay, resulting in some of the best audio of the era. This was also partly due to the team adding 5-channel surround sound featuring Dolby Pro Logic 2 tech towards the end of development, making Rogue Leader the first game ever to do so. Another series with a long history of development struggles is Fire Emblem. By the time of Fire Emblem Path of Radiance's release, the series was finally in a position to be well-received by English-speaking audiences. The game had a fairly interesting localization into English, with many small alterations being made throughout. In one scene, Ike will recall how he received a harsh scolding from his dad for attempting to reach out and take a medallion from his sister. Some players were curious as to whether the English dialogue was a faithful translation of the original Japanese, and turned to professional translator Cantopia for clarification. Cantopia translated the original paragraph into English, and found that it was almost word for word an accurate interpretation, all except Ike receiving a scolding. In the Japanese game, Ike's dad gave him a, quote, severe beating. This was likely changed due to physical punishment of children being considered a bit more taboo in the West than it is in Japan. It could also be due to ESRB concerns, but this would make some other localization changes in the game seem like very bizarre choices indeed. The localizers actually added multiple profane comments in Marcia's dialogue, and made her generally feistier overall. This includes calling Makalov a brainless eunuch and dungheel. These statements simply don't exist in the Japanese game at all, and were added to the English release. Path of Radiance was a late arrival to the GameCube, but one of the very last games to be published on the system, and certainly the last published by Nintendo, was The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. This game went through a curious development period, having originally been created for the GameCube, only to be simultaneously ported to the Wii in a cross-generational release. Some of the earliest periods of development reveal some curious choices from the dev team, such as one piece of information revealed by Zelda art director Satoru Takizawa surrounding the earliest experiments with the character of Midna. 
The creation of Link's adventuring partner in this game went through several iterations, with Takazawa stating, The challenge started with brainstorming among designers for ideas, and then we eventually finalised this character through a trial and error process for her shape, facial expressions, actions, etc. In early prototypes, as a placeholder for Midna, Tetra from The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker was riding on Wolf Link as he ran around Hyrule. While of course this choice of having Tetra's model be used was purely for prototyping, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that Tetra's stature may have contributed to the design of Midna in the final game. Other designs in the game were altered dramatically, even when they were intended to appear all along. The Uku in the final game's release take on the appearance of some sort of creepy bird with a human face, but at the time of Twilight Princess HD's release, the official Japanese Zelda Twitter account revealed that originally, the Uku would look more humanoid with bird-like features instead. The final game also has some secrets of its own. Players who've beat the Cave of Ordeals might recall that Room 49 contains three dark nuts for the player to overcome. However, if the player decides to go through the Cave of Ordeals a second time for whatever reason, they'll find that the cave is slightly more difficult, with the 49th room now having an additional fourth dark nut. This is fascinating and all, but this video has had far too little Mario so far. Let's fix that. Of course, one of the biggest releases on the GameCube was Mario's tropical outing, where he soaks up the sun in Super Mario Sunshine. This game has been explored inside and out by gaming fans for years, but even still, there's always more to learn about these big Nintendo titles. One Twitter user, Zelpiku Kirby, discovered an interesting trick that we've frankly never even heard of before that could be performed in Pina Park. If the player enters the level and lures a stew to the edge of the water fountain and flips it over with a spray, they can sling it into the Bowser Jr. balloons and pop them. Normally, these balloons can only be popped using the water rockets during the Mecha Bowser roller coaster event. Unfortunately, if the player pops some balloons and then triggers the roller coaster event, the balloons will have respawned. This is likely because the coaster event uses different balloons in slightly different positions. And while Zelpiku Kirby discovered this trick in the Mario 3D All-Stars version of Sunshine on the Switch, another Twitter user demonstrated that this same trick can indeed be performed in the original GameCube release. The game really focuses on the struggles Mario faces as he explores an island covered in goop, but there were clearly more effects to this goop than would be faced by the plumber during development but which were removed prior to the game's final publication. An unused goop effect can be found in the game's files that, when Mario jumps into it, will cause him to sink like it was quicksand and take damage. This effect causes Mario to perform unique struggling animations and voice clips that are not found anywhere in the final game, suggesting that this goop variant was cut late into development. Did you know? Instead of using a magical conductor's baton, Link was originally planned to control the wind using a theremin. This alien-sounding instrument was accidentally invented by a Soviet radio engineer in 1920. Leon Theremin was trying to make something else entirely, but ended up with the world's first major electronic instrument. Instead of touching it, the musician leaves their hands floating above it. One hand controls the frequency, and the other controls the amplitude. But how exactly did this almost get into a Zelda game? A movie about Leon 
Anton Theremin had just come out in Japan, about how he invented the instrument, traveled the world playing it, became a Soviet spy, and got thrown in the gulags. And it turns out that a few Nintendo devs saw the movie and thought, hey, that's an interesting story, let's have Link play a theremin in the next Zelda game. To control the instrument, players would have held their GameCube controller like this, with the analog and C-sticks each representing one of Link's hands playing the theremin. The game's title comes from the primary instrument, so up until halfway into development, the theremin itself was the Wind Waker. This was all explained by the game's director Eiji Aonuma in a 2003 issue of Nintendo Dream we recently had translated, and they joke that the game could have been called The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Theremin. For this video, we delved into hundreds of magazines looking for cut content and obscure facts about The Wind Waker, and ended up translating several magazines and some online interviews into English for the first time. We want to keep going the extra mile to get new and interesting facts for you guys, and if you want to see more of it too, leave a like on this video. It really helps us out. So, anyway, Aonuma and his team were all set with a Zelda game based around a theremin. Then, Shigeru Miyamoto came in for playtesting and, as he tends to do, upended the tea table. According to Aonuma, he'd play what we made and point out what was weird. We had the Wind Waker item ready to some extent, when Miyamoto came to me shaking his head saying no no no. He talked about how it was entirely unacceptable. We were using both sticks at first, adjusting with both hands like how you play a theremin. By moving both hands like this, then the magazine notes that Aonuma aims his palms down and moves his hands up and down, you could change the sound. But eventually we changed it to the baton, and everything else fell into place from there. By the way, a big thanks to Daniel Romberger for making this demonstration for us, so we can see and hear a theremin in action. Check out his channel for more Nintendo remixes. Miyamoto also changed Wind Waker's difficulty. It was initially harder, but a lot of Ocarina and Majora players got stuck on bosses and never got to experience the full game. So, to make sure everyone could reach the ending, Miyamoto toned down the difficulty, especially the bosses, compared to how the Zelda team originally had it set. When the HD remaster released a decade later, they added Hero Mode to compensate. But Aonuma said, even though he's the director, this new mode was too hard even for him. He got stuck on Goma and gave up, then asked his team if the difficulty he was experiencing was some sort of bug, and they were like, uh, no. Another aspect that Miyamoto wasn't keen on was Wind Waker's art style. Initially, Nintendo was just going to improve on the graphics from Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, and they even built a prototype in that style. But later on in the conceptual phase, the Zelda team's artist proposed Toon Link. The rest of the team loved it, and dove headfirst into the cel-shaded art style. Aonuma didn't think Miyamoto would like it, so he waited till they were already in pretty deep to show it to him. And he was right. Miyamoto literally cringed and didn't think it would sell. Aonuma recalls, If I had gone and talked to him from the very beginning, I think he would have said, how is that Zelda? Miyamoto had trouble letting go of the realistic Link art style until the very end. At some point, he had to give a presentation against his will. That's when he said something to me like, You know, it's not too late to change course and make a realistic Zelda. But the team was super enthusiastic about the new style and insisted they didn't want to give it up. It was inspired by the anime they watched as kids, especially Hayao Miyazaki's Animal Treasure Island. And Aonuma says Wind Waker's kind of unique in the way it doesn't feel like a 
Zelda game. It's more of an adventure across the sea where the main character just happens to be Link. And for that reason, the story was also kept from Miyamoto for quite a long time. Miyamoto really wasn't thrilled with the situation, but ultimately accepted it because with the team they had, it would have taken 10 years to make a realistic Zelda, but a Toon Zelda could be made in a fraction of the time. Most other Zelda titles make you feel like you're Link, but in Wind Waker, the team tried to make it feel more like you're guiding Link, almost as if you're watching an anime. In other words, he's his own entity outside the player's inputs. This separation was emphasized with Link's eyes. He looks around independently of the player's actions and what the player sees. In early builds shown to the public, Link's eyes were solid black, but a fan from Europe sent in a letter saying black eyes made Europeans uncomfortable. In response, Miyamoto said, His eyes would change between seven different colors. We made it so his eyes were temporarily red in battle, then blue when he calms down and green when he's talking to people and things like that. But ultimately we realized a human with red eyes is kind of creepy, isn't it? So at that point, we just decided to give up on the idea. Ultimately, they looked at Mario's blue eyes and said, let's just make Link's eyes blue and call it a day. Fan letters continued pouring in, especially from girls asking to get rid of the Toon Link altogether. Lots of girls demanded in no uncertain terms that they bring back the stud from Ocarina, the teenage heartthrob they fell in love with five years earlier, but Nintendo ignored them. Wind Waker's timeline placement changed as well. Miyamoto said they initially placed it at the very beginning, before the other Zelda games, but shortly after release, Saonuma said they'd changed it to take place a hundred years after Ocarina of Time, a fact reflected in the game's story. Probably the biggest changes in development were for the sea itself. According to Aonuma, we wanted to do away with the Hyrule we'd had so far. We didn't want to just remake the same Hyrule from the N64, so what could we do? How about we just sync the whole thing? At first, we had plans for primary and alternate worlds like A Link to the Past, where you could go back and forth between present and past Hyrule, but we couldn't make something like that in the limited time we had. In A Link to the Past, you can warp back and forth between the light world, where most of the game takes place, and a dark, twisted version of Hyrule called the Dark World. Wind Waker would have used a similar mechanic, but instead of the Dark World, Link would have explored underwater Hyrule. This concept art in the Hyrule Astoria gives us a better look at how they were thinking that might have worked, with Link using a key item to warp down to the lower world. To get back to the upper world, Link would have grabbed onto hooks belonging to fishermen who'd yank him up back to the surface. Wind Waker spent one year in the planning stages, which gave them time to decide which parts of the Great Sea lined up with parts of Ocarina's Hyrule, but Nintendo only gave them a year and a half in actual production. So unfortunately, the team simply didn't have enough time to fully implement their ideas, and the only underwater location they could include was Hyrule Castle. They also wanted to make the ocean a lot smaller. But according to Aonuma, part of the reason the sea's so vast is because if we made it smaller, there wouldn't be enough time to process the data for whatever island you were heading towards. We had to strike a good balance with the boat's speed for the same reason. In the middle of development, we wanted to make the boat go faster. But doing that meant the game couldn't read all the data, and it froze a lot. As a result, the ocean ended up bigger than they wanted, and some fans thought getting from island to island took too long, which is why they eventually added a swift sail in the HD remaster. In the final game, if you reach the edge of the ocean, the boat says you can't go any farther and forces you to U-turn. But the Zelda team originally thought of making the ocean continuous to simulate the world being round, like how the world works in Skies of Arcadia, a Dreamcast game that launched 
launched while Wind Waker was in its planning stage. That way, if you sail off the right side of the map, you'd suddenly appear on the left side, or if you keep going up, you'll come out at the bottom. But they ended up scrapping that idea for story purposes. Wind Waker was brand new when this magazine interview took place, so the developers didn't want to reveal too much about the plot. But they did say you'll understand why they didn't make the world round when you see the game's ending. They're probably alluding to Wind Waker's final moments, when Link and Zelda sail off into the distance, looking for a land that'll become the next Hyrule. If the game's ocean was round and continuous, that would have implied the game world was in the entire world, meaning Link and Zelda would never find the land they were looking for. In other words, a cool gameplay concept was scrapped for the sake of the story. Speaking of Wind Waker's ending, a direct sequel was originally planned for GameCube, which would have seen Toon Link riding a horse around on the Great Plains. So it seems Link and Tetra would have discovered the land they were looking for, but Wind Waker's sales fell so far below expectations that Nintendo decided to make Twilight Princess instead. Ubisoft staff also tried making a Wind Waker sequel for Game Boy Advance, but the project got canned after just one month. And in 2007, Aonuma said he wanted to make a new Wind Waker for Wii, but knew he wouldn't be able to swing it, presumably due to the disappointing sales of the original. Toon Link did eventually get a couple more adventures on Nintendo DS, but there was actually one more game with Toon Link that did get made, but never came to the West. Tetra's Trackers was a GameCube spin-off game released in 2004. The story picks up right where Wind Waker left off, with Link now trying to prove he's got what it takes to join Tetra's crew and become a bona fide pirate. It was announced at E3 2003, and was originally planned for worldwide release as a standalone GameCube game, but during the last year of development, it got shrunk down and included with Four Swords Adventures, but only in the Japanese and Korean versions of the game. There it was called Navi Trackers, but since the English title was announced as Tetris Trackers, that's what we're gonna call it. Tetris Trackers was never localized into any other languages, probably because it would have been difficult with the game's full voice acting. Have a listen and you'll see what we mean. Tetris Trackers never even got a fan translation, so we translated parts of it and added subtitles for use in this video. And it didn't just feature Tetra. A huge cast of Wind Waker characters make an appearance, and they talk constantly. Even minor characters like Sue Bell from Outset Island. The sploosh guy Salvatore has his own voice, and also does some impressions. But probably the most disconcerting voice comes from the King of Red Lions. We won't go over all the characters, but there's a lot of them, which would have made localizing Tetris trackers pretty tricky. And since it had already been relegated to just being a part of Four Swords, it probably wouldn't have been all that profitable. So how does the game actually work? In Four Swords Adventures, you plug up to four Game Boy Advances into your GameCube. Most of the gameplay takes place on the TV screen, and occasionally look down at their GBA screen if they go into a house or something. But in Tetris Trackers, most of the gameplay takes place on the GBA, and you occasionally look up at the TV to see the map or other miscellaneous information. It's basically a treasure hunting party game. 
Each player, represented by a different colored link, runs through maze-like stages searching for pirates, stamps, medals, seashells, rupees, everything's worth a certain number of points, and whoever's got the most points after 9 minutes wins. There's also a single-player mode where you compete against Tingle, that's the short explanation. It'd probably take 15 minutes to explain it all in depth, and there's some development background as well, so we'll save that for a future video. Make sure and subscribe if you don't want to miss it. But for the purpose of today's video, besides the funny voices and visuals, we also wanted to point out that Tetris Trackers fits into the Zelda timeline right here. It's Link's initiation into Tetra's Gang of Pirates, right between Wind Waker and Phantom Hourglass. But whether or not it's considered canon is controversial among fans, especially after it got bundled with Four Swords Adventures, which stars another Link who lives in a different timeline. Four Swords definitely is canon, but since there's two Links on one disc, and Tetris Trackers only released in Japanese, some fans refuse to acknowledge it. But even the developers don't think too much about the timeline and what is or isn't canon, so trying to find a definitive answer is probably overthinking it. Either way, it's certainly an interesting chapter in the life and times of Toon Link. Okay, let's get back to those magazines we translated. The whole staff talks about how glad they were to finally finish Wind Waker and how much crunch was required to get the game out on time. Looking back right after launch, they said, It was painful when we were making it. We really couldn't go home or see our kids. When everyone came into work in the morning, I'd move from where I slept on the third floor to my workstation on the fifth floor, and then go back to the third floor at night. I had no idea what was happening in the outside world. Aonuma wasn't even aware winter had arrived, adding, I saw some guys in the office wearing down jackets and thought, what's up with these guys? When I eventually got to go home, I was surprised to see how cold it had gotten. Even with all that crunch, Wind Waker's short year-and-a-half development meant they just didn't have enough time to include everything they would have liked. Aonuma says the very last thing they were working on when the clock struck midnight was the crabs. In the final game, they're tiny and don't really do anything except run away and dig into the sand. But the Zelda team wanted to make them ten times their normal size and much more interactive. Nintendo Dream Magazine makes a point of Aonuma's regretful tone as he tells them, We were going to have crabs on the shore and do lots of things with them, but in the end we couldn't make it happen. We were thinking about what to do with the crabs when development ended. Sorry about the crabs. He also also laments how the boat turned out. In the final game, if you're on the boat, equipping the bombs makes a cannon appear, and the grapple hook turns into a crane for dredging up treasure. But Aonuma says they wanted to add a lot more tools for the boat, but didn't have enough time. They probably could have implemented at least one more, if it wasn't for one guy on the Zelda team who vastly overestimated the American education system. Aonuma said, I've never sailed a ship before, and I thought sailboats couldn't move against the direction of the wind. But someone who's actually been on a yacht told me, if a boat zigzags, it can still sail against the wind which was the first I'd ever heard of that. I was told, this is something everyone in America learns in high school, and if you don't get it right, there are definitely going to be complaints. So I thought we couldn't cut corners there. The extra time spent on the zigzagging boat meant less time was left for other items. Previous Zelda games always had a nice variety of mini-games, like the shooting gallery and bomb-chew bowling, 
The team wanted to add something to Wind Waker too, like an island where Link can play golf. Unfortunately though, time was so tight that Aonuma had to give the order to abandon the idea. But as they were nearing the deadline, they came into the office one morning and were shocked to see the golf island somehow appeared out of nowhere. Aonuma said someone must have snuck in after hours and built it themselves, without anyone else on the team knowing. Sadly though, a lot of other mini-games weren't so lucky, and along with two entire dungeons, ultimately got left out of the final game. One thing that did make it in was the sploosh game on Windfall Island, which was demanded by Nintendo's old-timers, which kinda makes sense since it's based on Battleship, an old board game that boomers played when they were kids. Aonuma even had to ban the strategy guide team from playing it because he was afraid they'd get obsessed and never get around to playing the rest of the game. In the original Japanese version, Salvatore's game is literally about sinking battleships. But when Wind Waker was localized for an international audience, they changed it into a squid game. And when the HD remaster released a decade later, they used the squid version in every region, including Japan. But these aren't the only secrets we dug up on Wind Waker. According to Aonuma and Haruhana, the Deku Leaf was originally a paper fan. Its only purpose was fanning things, but later in development they came up with the idea for Link to use it to fly around in the wind, so they changed it into a leaf. If you ever wondered how deep underwater old Hyrule was, Aonuma provides an answer in one of these magazines. He says, We limited the sense of how deep it is because of the crane. It's fairly easy to go to Hyrule as well. It's deep enough to fully hide a person, and then a little deeper still. He might be referring to its canonical depth and not its actual depth though, because in his Boundary Break episode, YouTuber She Says moved the camera to get a visual of the depth, which made it look to be around 40 feet. The only part of Hyrule you actually get to visit is the castle, which is definitely deeper than both those estimates, but that's probably because it's at the bottom of a chasm. Another interesting fact is that every item in Wind Waker had its name translated in Wind Waker's English release, except for one, the Hioi Pear. As pointed out by Aonuma in one of these magazines, the fruit gets its name from Hioui, the Japanese word for possession, as in being possessed like how a spirit takes control of a person's body. So if they translated the Hioi pair, it would have been the possession pair, which apparently they didn't think the Western audience could handle. Well, probably the Western audience's parents, if you know what I mean. One of the younger devs, Toshiaki Suzuki, was selected as Wind Waker's quote, Tingle specialist. Working on Tingle and his fairy buddies was his entire job for quite some time. One of his co-workers said, From dusk till dawn, he thought about nothing but Tingle. It drove him crazy. In all these magazines, Toshiaki's only given one brief opportunity to speak, which he uses to say, I've been thinking about nothing but Tingle for these last few months, so please, experience adventuring together with Tingle. The rare blue Tingle is on Outset Island, dot dot dot. What he's talking about is the rarest character in the whole game, and most people who've played Wind Waker never even knew he existed. Knuckle is Tingle's little brother. He carved the entirety of Tingle Tower by himself when he was just 10 years old. Then Tingle came along and put up a sign that said for Tingle only, which made Knuckle so mad that he ran away to Outlet Island. The only way you can ever see Knuckle in the GameCube version is by plugging in a Game Boy Advance and going to Outset 
which triggers an argument between the two fairy brothers. Then you play a mini-game to unlock the hand-me-down Tingle Tuner, an item only found in the GameCube version that lets you buy arrows, bombs, and bait any time you want through the GBA. Finding Knuckle is such a hassle that the game actually considers your figurine collection complete if you manage to get all of them except Knuckle. Speaking of Knuckle's figurine, its description features an interesting secret. It says his studio is inside the head of Tingle Tower. It's impossible to get inside the tower's head through any normal means, but it is possible if you hack the game. And by the looks of it, it seems the Tingle specialist really did go crazy. Just look at this place. Since the HD remaster couldn't hook up with a Game Boy Advance, most of Knuckles' content got cut. The argument, the minigame, and even the hand-me-down Tingle Tuner he gives you. But he will appear on Tingle Island after you get the five Tingle statues, and Knuckles' figure now is required to complete the full collection. It's been updated to say, supposedly it used to bother him that this collection was considered complete, even without his figurine. And if you're worried about that Tingle specialist who went crazy, don't worry. Things worked out pretty well for him. He immediately got promoted to director and made Four Swords Adventures. And nowadays, he's producer on the Mario Party series. Bionicle was a line of LEGO construction toys launched around the world in 2001. The franchise came with its own meticulously crafted fictional universe, which unfolded across various mediums like videos on CDs packaged with the toys and a comic book series produced by DC Comics. In its first year, the story revolved around six legendary heroes, the Toa, and their struggle to liberate the island of Matanui from the grip of an ancient evil. While the franchise was still under development, in the late 90s, its accessible tale of good versus evil was deemed by the toy giant LEGO to be suitable fodder for a video game adaptation. Partnering with developers at Sapphire Inc, LEGO planned to release the first ever Bionicle video games in late 2001. The main project, a PC game, would go on to be extensively publicised by LEGO as it was being worked on, hyping up fans in the run-up to launch. However, within the final stretches of its development cycle, the game's release was unexpected and suddenly cancelled. With only limited information to go on, fans around the world were left to wonder, what was this game and why was it never finished? 17 years on from its development, memories of the project have been kept alive by avid Bionicle enthusiasts such as those belonging to sites like the Biomedia Project. With assistance from them and Bionicle community The Beaver House, I've worked to demystify the circumstances surrounding its development. Revealing more of the game than ever before along the way, I'll be sharing with you the inside story behind the original LEGO Bionicle video game. Sapphire's Bionicle project is understood to have been established in around spring of the year 2000. The company was contracted by LEGO to make two games based around the property. The main project, a 3D action-adventure title, would be developed for PC. A port of it to the Nintendo GameCube was intended to release later, in spring 2002. The PC title would be accompanied by a smaller companion game on the Game Boy Advance, also set for late 2001. Sapphire at the time was a game studio on the rise, working on successful projects like StarCraft Brood War and the Nintendo Nintendo 64 port of Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. Based in Salt Lake City, Utah, the company formed what LEGO believed to be a safe pair of hands for translating
translating Bionicle into video game form. It would help to further boost the franchise's mindshare going into the crucial holiday period of 2001, or so was the plan. The games were intended to be canon to the larger Bionicle series, offering fans a new way to experience the universe's mythology and ongoing plot up close and personal. It was all based around the 2001 Bionicle story, where the series' villain Makuta has used his dark influence to corrupt the wild animals of Mata Nui, called the Rahi. At his behest, they've begun attacking villages in an effort to seize the island. The Game Boy Advance title, originally named LEGO Bionicle Tales of the Tohunga, was planned to serve as a prequel to the main experience on PC. It was a top-down adventure game in which players took control of Takua, a Matanui Islander on a mission to gather the Toa Stones and rescue his elders from the Rahi. The story would wrap up with an ending stinger directly leading into the start of the PC game. In the last cutscene, Takua summons the Toa, six warriors prophesied to defeat Makuta and bring order to the Bionicle world. The PC game, the full title of which was LEGO Bionicle The Legend of Mata Nui, would have opened with the Toa emerging from their canisters after crashing to the island as their adventure begins. In The Legend of Mata Nui, there were six playable characters, all lifted from the original line of Bionicle toys from 2001. Each of the six Toa was represented with their own level reflecting their individual elemental powers. They all landed on different sectors of the island into environments relevant to their abilities. For example, Tahu, the fire element, finds himself navigating a volcano. The Legend of Mata Nui took the form of a 3D third-person action-adventure game heavy on platforming elements. Each level was a uniquely themed open environment and saw one of the six Toa helping out the islanders native to that region of Mata Nui they've arrived on. Each hero would face tasks like rescuing the villagers from attacking enemies and returning missing items to their owners. These quests would see you wandering all over the region, solving puzzles and fighting various infected creatures. Combat mostly involved the Toa firing energy spheres from their bodies, aimed using the in-game cursor to neutralize enemies. Characters could also perform melee attacks, such as Kopaka, who could slash his sword. Its structure in many ways is reminiscent of early 3D Legend of Zelda games like Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Players unlock new abilities by collecting and equipping Kanoe masks and other artifacts found on the island. These could then be used to reach previously inaccessible parts of the map. The similarities don't end there. Each character had their own version of a grappling hook item that would help them zip up towards higher ground, which functioned in a manner very similar to Zelda's hookshot. The game featured a wealth of different items like this that would grant special powers. The first you would have used was Onua's mask, the Kanoe of strength, that allows him to move Move heavy objects. Others could enable such traits as a protective shield, super speed, temporary invisibility, mind control, and even telekinesis. These masks could be cycled through on the fly at the push of a button. In addition to these, each Toa could perform character-specific actions that were unique to them. Onua could dig through soft dirt using his claws, Gali was able to swim underwater, Pohatu could kick coli balls and ride wild animals, Kopaka could snowboard down hills on his shield, Lua could swing from tree to tree using vines, and Tahu, lastly, could surf 
cliff on lava. Once they have gathered the Kanohi and completed tasks for the villagers, the elders of each area would eventually deem the Toa ready to face their last test. They would face a monster based around their elemental power, one of six disciples of Makuta. Once disposed of, the boss would leave behind a Makoki stone for you to collect. As the Toa moved on to a new area, you were intended to see a transitional cutscene where they meet the next character you would be controlling. In these cinematics, the player would get to see the two Toa briefly interact before passing on the Kanoe masks they've gathered to aid the next character in their journey. This storytelling device meant that players would get to keep the abilities they have earned from level to level. Ultimately, after destroying the elemental bosses and bringing peace to each region, the six Toa would finally unite as the endgame draws near. In an extended pre-rendered cutscene, we see them use the Makoki stones they've collected to open an ancient temple within which Makuta and his minions reside. After being transported inside, the six Toa split up to explore its mysterious inner workings. They happen upon pods that fuse the two groups of Toa into two merged beings, combining their strength to become the Toa Kaida. We see the Kaida battle some of Makuta's most powerful Rahi, the Manas, before turning back to their original forms. As the last section of the game starts to unfold, players would have had to explore Makuta's treacherous lair as each of the six heroes. In a test of what the player has learned throughout the game, each Toa had a room devoted to them. Players would be required to complete a platforming section as each character and escape their room before time ran out. Around this point, the Toa were intended to finally confront Makuta, although this part of the game was never completed. Former developers say the minutiae of how it would have played out was never set in stone. This is one of the few sections of the game that wasn't finalised. While not without bugs, the vast majority of it was up and running. The ending, on the other hand, had been finished. In another pre-rendered cinematic, a beam of white light shoots out of the temple, signifying Makuta's defeat. It's visible from every corner of Matanui, and we see the islanders dancing in celebration. This sequence was seemingly inspired by the ending of Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Evidence of this can be found in the game's data. The video file for this cutscene was named Ewok Celebration. The game's menu showed the developers had plans for additional bonus content outside the main story, most of which was left incomplete. Some work was done on a gallery filled with art that players would have been able to print off. They had also intended to include a number of instructions manuals showing how to build the game's enemies out of real Lego. The project being shut down was the culmination of a somewhat uneasy journey for Sapphire. Although the team functioned well, and the game itself was made in a creatively healthy environment by all accounts, there were some fairly serious problems surrounding it throughout. One hurdle that both Sapphire Bionicle projects briefly dealt with, while not nearly as severe to them as issues that would later arise, involved a dispute with LEGO itself. In May 2001, the official North American launch of Bionicle Bionicle was imminent when the Maori people of New Zealand began raising concerns that the franchise was appropriating Polynesian culture for corporate gain. Bionicle in its first year was heavily inspired by Polynesian culture, something LEGO itself did not shy away from admitting. However, the matter became contentious when it emerged the company had used existing words from their language and reappropriated them as terms specific to the Bionicle universe. One example of this that the Maori people found 
to be particularly egregious was their use of the word Tohunga. In their language, this word is reserved for an expert practitioner of an art or skill, such as teaching or healing. Lego had used this word as the name for one of the main species of characters in Bionicle. The Tohunga were sold as a line of toys throughout 2001 and were planned to be a major part of their upcoming video games. May 2001 saw the model issuing a statement to challenge Lego's appropriation of their language. In particular, their statement targeted the Bionicle video games in development and hoped the words in question would not be used by them. In summer 2001, LEGO instructed Sapphire to remove Tohunga and other offending words from their games. As such, all mentions of Tohunga were scrubbed from the Legend of Matanui's dialogue mid-development. The Game Boy Advance game was notably affected too since it was all about the Tohunga characters and up until this point had even been called LEGO Bionicle Tales of the Tohunga. Sapphire officially retitled it as Quest for the Toa, and LEGO would later rename the species in the Bionicle lore as Matoran. Aside from this, one major issue lurking beneath the surface during work on The Legend of Matanui was Sapphire's growing financial strife. Several developers I spoke to for this video shared that they experienced recurring problems with receiving payment for their work on the game. Former employees from Sapphire say that in the final several months of development, their paychecks were reduced without warning and were delivered less frequently as time went on. Workers are said to have been putting in shifts of up to 70 hours per week during summer 2001, but in some cases, Sapphire neglected to pay them regardless. At the height of crunch time, where developers found themselves in the offices until late at night, whole weeks of work were being left unpaid. Sapphire's money troubles were being exacerbated in no small part by a company spending spree that had begun earlier that year. In spring 2001, they had moved to a larger and much more expensive office complex in American Fork, Utah. The management decked the place out with new furniture and an elaborate business phone system which is said to have set them back tens of thousands of dollars. On top of that, the costs of rent were much higher than those of their previous base of operations. By August, it was becoming increasingly apparent that Sapphire was in dire straits. Rumours spread among employees that the company's management was attempting to call private investors in order to ease their financial woes. One former developer reports hearing that a wealthy local businessman from the Salt Lake City area was in talks to sell a private plane to raise money for them. Ultimately, Sapphire was unsuccessful at securing additional funds, and the situation would only worsen as 2001 went on. During The Legend of Matanui's last two months under development, a handful of employees were left completely unpaid. The project would finally be cancelled on October 10th, 2001. A group of developers were promptly laid off without Severance Bay. They filed with the state of Utah to retrieve back wages, and Sapphire would eventually reimburse them a year later. The blow dealt by the legend of Matanui's cancellation sent the company into a slow death spiral. Following years of financial instability, Sapphire stopped working on games in 2004 and officially went out of business in 2007. Despite its fate, the game developed something of a cult following online among enthusiasts. The project took on a life of its own as fans desperately sought to understand more about it and why it had disappeared. One factor behind this enduring fascination with the game is that LEGO went to great lengths to publicise its existence throughout its development. Starting in January 2001 through a sponsorship deal with Nestle, Bionicle branded discs were bundled with packs of Cheerios cereal. These CDs contained an early version of a pre-rendered cinematic from the game. 
The Bionicle comics repeatedly mentioned the video game in their back pages and later ran a competition where readers could win a free copy of it when it was finished. LEGO also had plans to bundle a collectible Bionicle mask exclusively with copies of the game. They began promoting the title on the official Bionicle website soon after this and even put out a public call for beta testers. Fans in North America could apply to test the game and provide feedback. In return, they were promised a spot in the credits, a free copy of the game, and a complimentary Bionicle hat, but the tests never took place due to the project's unforeseen discontinuation. The reasoning behind the Legend of Matanui's cancellation has long been the subject of debate. One long-standing rumour alleges that the game was rife with glitches and therefore could not be fixed within a reasonable span of time. Some ex-members of the team, however, refute these claims and say that they were on schedule to release it in late 2001. A former programmer who worked on it estimates it was around 90% completed by the end. By all accounts, the order to shut it down, which came from LEGO itself, was unexpected and sudden. Members of the development team were relayed an unofficial reason for cancellation by Sapphire's higher-ups, but some of them were skeptical of how reliable this information was. Multiple sources say that the justification given to them relates to a major event in world history that had taken place only one month prior the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Allegedly, the managers of Sapphire claimed that LEGO no longer wanted to pursue a game with violence in it after 9-11. Although, out of every developer that shared information in the making of this video, all of them found this reasoning to be incredulous. They assert that LEGO had closely overseen the project, receiving updates on a weekly basis, and would have voiced their concerns had they objected to any violence in the game. A good example of that in effect comes from Darvell Hunt, who was a programmer on the project. He was responsible for writing code for physics-based destruction that would cause enemies to shatter into individual LEGO pieces when they were destroyed. LEGO instructed him to cut this feature for being too violent. Speaking to one of the most senior staff members on the project, who oversaw the entire game's development, reveals the true justification LEGO gave to Sapphire for cancelling it. According to project leader Brent Fox, LEGO was subject to management shifts in late 2001, bringing new blood not only to the Bionicle franchise, but their whole media output. These changes in staff had huge implications for everyone working with their video game department at the time. Every project under the umbrella of LEGO software was put under scrutiny, a staff with a new vision for LEGO's video games came to power. At the same time this was happening, another game studio, Argonal Games, had started pitching a Bionicle game of their own to the team newly chosen to oversee LEGO's media production. Argonaut's people proposed a video game that would land on every major platform at the time. Swayed by Argonaut's ideas, LEGO's management chose to discontinue The Legend of Matanui at Sapphire and move forward with their game instead. This was all part of an effort to take the franchise in a direction more in line with their vision for it. Over $1 million is said to have been spent on it up until this point, not including marketing expenses. Since The Legend of Matanui was a project made under the previous LEGO management, the new guard felt no obligation to keep it going and chose to start over with a clean slate. Another reason factoring into the decision included problems the development team had experienced with chip compatibility. The game was incompatible with a lot of video 
video cards on the market at the time, something they had yet to resolve. Plans for a GameCube version set to come out in 2002 were scrapped as well. LEGO and Sapphire had a good relationship with Nintendo, and had intended for their machine to be the only console it would release on initially. Sapphire's Bionicle game for the GBA, Quest for the Toa on the other hand, was released, since it had already been finished. It included the end teaser setting up the plot covered by Legend of Matanui, a game that would never officially be released. Instead, the 2001 Bionicle story was told through other mediums like novels, comic books, and the Matanui online flash game. Regardless of issues with how it was run, some former developers remember their time at Sapphire fondly. If footage recovered from the game's development is any indication, the team took to their work with a sense of humour. Brent Fox, one of the project's heads, filmed a light-hearted behind-the-scenes video detailing day-to-day -day life at the studio. This sense of humour appears to have rubbed off on the game itself too. Hidden in the game's files were a number of explicit secret animations labelled as cheats that can be imported into builds and used with certain characters. Onua can flip off the camera, Pohatu can urinate, and Tahu can fart over his fire sword, creating a flame jet. In the years after development ended, enthusiasts have tried to track down what remains of the game. Nearly 17 years later, Bionicle fan hub The Beaver House and The Biomedia Project, a site for preserving material from the series, finally made a breakthrough. In February 2018, they received a functioning build of the game dated July 23rd, 2001. The build was largely unfinished, but they were able to enhance it considerably, fixing bugs and updating its visuals to run in high definition. In April 2018, I was able to recover the most recent build of the game known to exist, which was taken on October 23rd, 2001. This was made possible by the actions of senior staff on the project in the days after its cancellation. They made copies of the final build on CDs and privately distributed them to members of the team as a keepsake to remember it by. I passed the build on to representatives of the Beaver House who formed a new development team called Lightstone to update the game and bring it to the public. Thanks to their efforts, it can now run on modern Windows PCs in widescreen, HD, and 60 frames per second. The team has aspirations of recreating the planned game as accurately as they reasonably can, attempting to stay true to Sapphire's original creative vision. Lightstone plans to distribute the game for free via biomediaproject.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.